Would you stand as uh, we're going to read in honoring God's word, Genesis 24. Now, last week I didn't, I, first service, I only got through three, so that's where we ended. I want to finish up uh, these six factors in both evangelism and this morning also in serving the Lord. And I, I hope they'll encourage you. So in Genesis 24, let's just read the first nine verses to begin the chapter. And then we'll go through uh, the verses in looking at these six factors to that. And this whole uh, picture that we have spiritually of being the bride of Christ. So Abraham was old. Verse 20, chapter 20, Genesis 24, 1. Well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for, and I, the emphasis I think are on the pronouns, my son, from the, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac." And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So, Lord, again, we need your Holy Spirit. Now we're praying. As you said, he would teach us all things. He'd bring to remembrance all things that you commanded us. And so he would would be the teacher, the helper. So, Lord, I'm praying that you'd give us ears to hear the things that you're saying to the church today. This gathering. I pray, Lord, you take the things I've, I've uh, prepared, break them fresh for us this service in, in our hearing your word, that we might not only hear, but we might do the things, we might respond to you in obedience to what your word says. We thank you, Lord, every time we read it, every time we hear it, every time we're thinking about it, that's your voice, it's your word, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, we're thankful that you've given to us this book, the Bible, the love story of, to beat all love stories. We thank you for this chapter. We ask again that you bless now the things that we're hearing and that you bless, Lord, not only us individually, bless our marriages, bless our families, bless our church, please, Lord that we might be who you've called us to be so that you can do in us and through us the things that you want to do. So give us ears now in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. So you can be seated. So I want to encourage you to listen to part one. I'm going to, I'm going to run over a little bit of that uh, in an outline way, but uh, it was, it's, it's the first three of these six factors that we started talking about. In Genesis 23 through 27, this whole section, we're We're looking at faith. This is the faith of Isaac, and we're looking at the family. So in Genesis 24, we have this picture of a bride, a picture of a marriage. And Genesis 24 is a beautiful, miraculous, and heavenly love story. And so we have the love of a father for a son. We have the love of a servant for his master. And we have the love of a bridegroom for his bride. Abraham loved Isaac. 
Eleazar the servant loved his master. That was his motivation in doing what he's doing in this chapter. And Isaac, we read in the last verse, loved Rebekah. So it's a love story. And here's what we looked at last week. The New Bible Dictionary says, The Lord Jesus is the divine bridegroom who seeks his bride in love and enters into covenant relations with her. So I want to begin in, in Ephesians chapter 4 where we get one place where this is the picture. Ephesians chapter 4, 5 says this. Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ also Love the church. So in other words, it, it goes alongside this picture. And gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blame. This is the love of Christ to us, his bride. So husbands ought to love their wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. He who loves, himself, he who loves his wife loves himself. It, when we love our wives, as Christ is called, we benefit from that because that's what happens when you love. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body. So another picture we have in the Bible of the church is the body of Christ. At, of his flesh and his bones. So he's given the picture, given back in, in Genesis, of what, ha, what is marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And notice what he says. This is a great mystery. Now, how many of you who are married would say, this is a great mystery? <laughs> marriage is a great mystery. Why? Because we're unique. There's no marriage that's the same. There's no two people the same. So when you go into a marriage relationship, let me say if you're not married, when you do, you're going to find out there's a lot of mysterious things about this relationship called marriage. And there's mysterious things about how the intimacy begins to build in your marriage, which is different and unique from every other marriage. So yes, we get principles, but working that marriage out is, treat, is loving our wives as Christ loved the church, husbands. And this is the picture that we get. So, but I speak, it's a great mystery, the one flesh, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's this picture given to us of the marriage relationship that God gave to us. He ordained it. He sanctified it. He blesses it. And we, in our, in our relationship with each other as husband and wife, understand something, at least mentally, hopefully more and more in the heart, the longer that we're together. This is so absolutely incredible. It's incredible what God does in a marriage relationship. So last week, again, I shared this, this Zelmira and Herbert Fisher. They broke a world record, but their secret is simple. So before their death, after 87 years of marriage, when he died, before that, they interviewed them, and they asked them the secrets of everlasting love. So I gave a couple last week. Let me give you a couple more. They asked, you got married very young. How did you both manage to grow as individuals yet not grow apart as a couple? That's a great question. Here is their answer. Everyone who plants a seed and harvests the crop grow and harvests, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong one. No, no, I am. I'm reading the right one. Harvest celebrates together. We are individuals but accomplish more together. So he's looking at just the whole process of growing. And he likens it, as Paul also does, to this planting and harvesting. Jesus also did. 
Uh, They asked him, what is your fondest memory of your 85-year marriage? And to this I would say, amen, and I would say it four times because we have four grandchildren. (laughs) They said this, what's the fondest memory of your marriage? Our legacy. Five children, ten grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. So they're saying it's legacy. And if you're married for any amount of time and you have children, you understand that answer. That's the legacy. We want what we, you know, a parent, parents want their children to exceed them in being successful, whatever that means, but hopefully what Christ said. We want to see them go beyond the things that we've experienced in their intimacy with God. And so this legacy that we want to pass down to our children and to their children and to their children's children. I'm commenting on this. This is not what they said. I'm saying uh, At the end of a bad relationship day, what is the most important thing to remind yourselves? Good question. They said, remember marriage is not a contest and keep a score. God has put the two of you together on the same team to win. Now, I'm not sharing these things oblivious to the fact that marriage is difficult. And some of you have gone through difficult marriages, divorces, and all those things. But God's design, this is what he has in mind for our relationships in marriage. Final one that I'll share. One What's the one thing you have in common that transcends everything else? They said, we are both Christians and believe in God. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord. We pray with and for each other every day. And let me say, threefold cord is not easily broken. It's, God, it's the husband and wife and Christ center to it. So Genesis 24, a bride for Isaac, is this spiritual picture we see that God the Father desires to find a bride for his son. In order to do this, God sent the Holy Spirit to woo a people, to call and prepare a people to respond, meet, and eventually marry his son. And so the four things that I outlined this chapter was Number one, Abraham sends his servant. He says, you shall go and take a wife for my son. Secondly, his servant went and it happened. This is where we left off a little, so we'll pick that up in this study. Secondly, though, he went and it happened. It didn't just happen, but here's what happened. Third, his servant witnessed and worshiped. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. When this servant realizes what God is doing, he worships. And then finally, Rebecca, the beautiful virgin, responds and says, I will go. Take me to be his bride. Beautiful. So I would say, let the wooing begin. Rebecca is a spiritual picture of the beautiful virgin, divinely met, chosen, called, and then lavished with gifts. Rebecca is a picture of the bride of Christ. Now, unknown to her at the time in growing up, unknown to her was that she was destined for this intimate relationship called marriage. And when she heard and saw the witness of the servant, when she heard and saw the things that this servant brought, she willingly chooses to leave her, family, her earthly family And then goes with the servant to be married to the son. Beautiful picture. So Abraham sends his servant, you shall go and take a a wife for my son. 
His servant went and it happened. And this is where we'll pick it up. Now notice verse 15 of chapter 24. And it happened before he had finished speaking. So the servant, I believe it's Eleazar is his name. He's praying and before, while he's praying, it happened before it was even done. Now it didn't just happen. And that's why I want to bring to you six factors. But the six factors that I talked about a little more in depth last week really began to take shape through an email that I received a week and a half ago from a brother speaking for himself and his wife who were, he was losing sleep because we've been talking for three or four weeks about the Great Commission and particularly evangelism. He was crying over it because he felt like a failure because he and his wife are both introverts. And I said, thank you for sending that because that's something to be reminded me. It brought to to the surface does evan- and that's the question he asked, does evangelism look the same for everyone? And of course, no, it doesn't. We are all very unique, and we've been given spheres of influence that are unique to us by God, created in his image, but very uniquely. So I wrote to him and said, I would never want to squelch something God may be challenging you to do. But I also know that when God is doing a work in our hearts, it is always undergirded with hope, not despair and condemnation. He is the God of hope. Looking forward then to what God will do. Perfect love casts out fear. The world condemns us. We condemn ourselves. Our friends will condemn us, and certainly the adversary to our faith, the devil, will condemn us. But there is therefore no condemnation. Those are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In the flesh, I will experience, but in the spirit, it's not that these law, the law of sin and death has somehow is not in play anymore. It is in play. We have a fleshly nature. We have these battles that we're battling, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is supersedes the law of sin and death. So only by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Paul in Romans chapter eight says there's no condemnation. He's coming out of chapter seven. says, the things I don't wanna do, I'm doing. The things I hate, I'm not only doing, I'm practicing them. The things I wanna do, I'm not doing. He's having this battle, and so he said, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin, and that's always gonna be the case. So the condemnation that we are experiencing, where is that coming from? We must identify that. The devil will condemn us. Condemnation is always going to drive us from the one who loves us. Whereas the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to draw us back to God, who is our only source and our great need, that he loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He betrothed us to his son, He's got a marriage coming. There's a celebration coming. And so it's his love, Paul said, that constrained him. Not that I love God, but that he loved me and sent his son to be the propitiation for my sin. My love for God is because he first loved me. My love for others is because God loves me. And growing that love is not, God's not going to be condemning me. He's not going to be guilting me. And so it's saying, The Lord will, I said, the Lord will encourage you. He will encourage you to enjoy his love for you. Share that as only you can. And thank him for what he has done, for what he's doing, and for what he will yet do because he loves you. And through repentance, 
And through turning back to him, we find again, my need is not some greater methodology. My need is the great master to master my heart in his love for me, to master my conscience, to master my doings, and to take me to a deeper love for him that comes because he indeed loves me everlastingly. I said to him, he will never be expecting you, an introvert, to be an extrovert. He didn't create you that way. And so, this is in the area of the Great Commission and evangelism. Evangelism is a part of the Great Commission. Discipleship does not start once a person's saved. The first part of discipleship is being saved. So we are called to be witnesses. We're called to evangelize. So he's saying, does evangelism always look the same? No, but I'm going to apply that also this morning because I think it's the same thing, the same factors, the same principles that I'll share this morning. Does serving the Lord look the same for everyone? And the answer is no. Uniquely no. Serving can be just as scary just as daunting. Serving can be just as misunderstood and just as debilitating. And I hope to encourage you this morning in your attempts to, in evangelism, however that takes shape, but certainly also in your attempts to serve the Lord and particularly in the body of Christ because we're called to that. Just as we're called to the Great Commission, we're called to be members of a, of a body. And so... The Lord is not burdening you with a condemning guilt. We are, he, he burdens with his love. And as we grow in his love, our burden becomes something that becomes more and more attuned to the needs of those around us and to love them and to serve them and to help them. Love is a decision to do what is right in spite of what I feel. That's love. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It's not a feeling. Love suffers long and is kind. Now that to me is like, are you kidding me? Suffer long. I'll tell you, when someone's causing suffering me, I'm not going to be kind. But love suffers long. Love does not envy. Love is not provoked. In 1 Corinthians 13, you read the definition of love and there's not a feeling about it. In fact, it's opposite what I would feel. But you see, that love, the source of that agape love is not me, it's God. And as he has loved me, as I'm beginning to understand that, and let me say this, central to understanding it is the cross. God demonstrated his love towards us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Wow. We're going to take communion today. And I hope the Lord will just continue to remind us as we need reminder. We're looking back to what he's done for us. We're living now in what he's wanting to do for us. But we have a marriage coming up. We have a future and a hope that is not based on what I'm doing. It's how I'm responding to the love of God in my life. And I look to the cross and I realize on that cross, he paid the penalty for my sin. He cleanses me from my unrighteousness. He died in my place and he, he took care of all the problem that we had in the sin of God. The wrath of God on sin, he took. And so, in taking the wrath of God, he released now mercy. And through the mercy and grace of God, 
It's amazing. We're going to take communion. And so love is demonstrated through sacrifice. So it's, it's doing what is right in spite of how I feel. So how does that happen? Listen, again, it's unique to you. It's unique for you. But to not act is to not obey. And to not obey is to miss out on the love of God. It's in obedience that we understand and experience the love of God. He wants, as we read in Jude, keep yourself under the spout where the glory comes out. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in that place where God can bless you and love you as he wants to. It's not that he stopped loving you, but you now in in living disobediently have removed yourself out from under the spout where God wants to pour over you his love. How do I get back under the spout? You turn around and repent, get back under in obeying God. And so it's not only his love for you, but his love through you to others. That's part of this experience. Because love is others-oriented. Love is others-centered. So if my world is just me, that's a lonely world. But when I begin to give God's centrality to my life, All around, I'm just with a lot of other people who God loves. And my life begins to impact those spheres of influence he's given to me. I'm changed. They're changed. And let me say to you, that's what love does. That's what happens when you love someone. Change happens. Depth comes. Intimacy happens. Fruitfulness abounds when there's obedience to the commandments of God. And the fulfilling of the commandments is to love God with all our soul and to love our neighbors. So it's true of the Great Commission, including evangelism. We are to go and make disciples. We are ambassadors. We are his witnesses to the gospel. We are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We must go and engage uniquely as only you can. Because God's made you that way. And part of that uniqueness forces an intimacy with God and God only. There are a lot of other people that, and it's good to have counsel and to seek those things out, but ultimately it comes, we can't give our relationship to God to anyone else. Neither can they us. We have to be, be pursuing that ourselves. So fleeing youthful lust and pursuing righteousness, what Paul told Timothy. There's a pursuit of God that's uniquely individual, and that's how God intends it. That's how God created us. So it's true not only of the Great Commission, including evangelism, it's also true of every member of his body. Each member uniquely doing its part. No member, listen, is ever obsolete. No member is not needed. No member is ever excused. Every member must be engaged uniquely, diversely, if the, if the body itself is going to be healthy and growing. And so this picture of the body of Christ, it's unity with tremendous diversity. Even on the, we watched that little video of these, the diversity up there is amazing. That's how God, the body is another picture he gives to us. So this won't be on the screen because I didn't get it up there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Imagine saying that. I don't need you. (laughs) He says, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, 
those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And if you look at the body and how God created it, it's a picture, again, another spiritual picture of the unity with diversity that God has placed us within the body in a special place and every member doing its share is what causes a growth in love, Paul told. It's the growth in love. So six factors that we looked at started last week. First of all, Eliezer had a plan. His plan was to load up 10 camels (laughs) to go fully loaded with what? The evidence of the greatness and goodness of his master. Now, how has God loaded up you with his treasures? How do you know him as so great? How do you know him as so good? See, he went loaded. So when he got to that place, he didn't know who it was going to be or where he would even wind up. But he gets that place, and he has 10 camels that are loaded and servants. So there's an obvious witness to the goodness and greatness of his master. And so, too, for us. We've been uniquely loaded up with the goodness and greatness of God. What does that mean to you? How do you express that? How do you live that out? There are many diverse ways. But basically, and by the way, he went because he loved his master. He went because he loved his master's son. The motivation, and that's what love does. The motivation is to go out and talk about them. And thus, in evangelism, as well as in serving, the plan is go with one goal in mind. That's to express the love of God. To love. Second thing we looked at last week is God's providence. Now this, again, I'll I'll point you to our study last week. But the providence of God, that God works sovereignly through the choices that I make. Now this is a mystery also. But the the whole idea is let the wooing begin. Let the serving begin. How? Go. Trusting God is with you and will work through you. That's the providence of God. I may feel weak, I may feel unable, I may feel unworthy. But as I step out to go, I want to talk about God's greatness. I want to be a witness to his goodness. I want to talk about his love. As I go, believe this, go trusting God is with you. And he is working through you. He works in mysterious ways. He's working when you don't even see it. And I've experienced that several times in my life. In fact, there's been times when I think I've utterly failed the Lord. I remember I used to sit, they used to call me Brother Kev. I was in construction when I first came back to the Lord in Southern California. And I'd sit around with 10 or 12, you know, carpenters, and I was Brother Kev, Brother Kev. Because I would always, let's talk about Jesus coming back, which is huge in that, at that time. And so they want to talk about all the prophecy stuff, which people love to talk about that. And so I became Brother Kev, Brother Kev. And there was one time where I just got really mad. I was ticked. <laughs> and I went away from that day thinking, I just failed, utterly miserable. And then I come back the next day and we pick it up again. You know how that is. You kind of, but I felt like a miserable, and then in this group of people, there was this very large man. His name was Charlie Parham. And I didn't want to mess with this guy because he could squash me. And so I didn't. And I, I got to know him a little bit. And then they sent the whole crew out to Palm Springs, California. And there it gets to be 100 degrees when it's 4 o'clock in the morning or something. And so we start at 6. We get done at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm in my, you know, each had little um, hotel rooms. And I'm in there. It still makes me cry because I think, Lord, you're amazing how you're working in spite of my, even my failures. You're working even when I don't even realize it. 
And I knew nothing about what Charlie Parham was going in his life. I knew nothing about him except that we talk about Jesus once in a while and I would get mad. <laughs> and so here's a knock on my glass door, the patio door. Knock, 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 opens the door. And Charlie's crying. His marriage is a mess. He's a mess. And he comes in and he just starts to talk to about that. I'm thinking, Lord, this is incredible. You see, that's the deal. The providence of God, if we'll go, and the, only, the goal is to love, and we'll trust that God is with us, that God's going to work through it. Even when we feel like we've utterly failed, the fact is God does not fail. In fact, one of our tenets in Calvary Chapel South is we're not afraid to fail. We are going to fail. But thank God he's bigger than our failures. Would you say amen to that? He, and parents, take heart. You may feel like a complete failure in your parenting. And maybe in some ways, as I could admit myself, yes, I get it. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Why couldn't I be like 70 years old when I had my first kid? Well, because it would kill my wife. <laughs> but, you know, don't you wish? And so then you talk to your kids. And you give, try to give them some wisdom. And they don't listen to you. And then later on, you know, you were right. And you want to say, well, of course I was right. Well, I lived it. I get it. I understand it. So just, I'm getting off. Oh, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for what? Nothing. Are you kidding me? But in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. Let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The third, the third factor here are his prayers. He prayed to God, verse 12. Oh, Lord God, my master Abraham, God, you gotta, you, I need to know that I'm making the choice that you chose. And so he lays out this little, we looked at this last week. Prayer may be, in fact, when I read the Bible and what it says about prayer's power and prayer's priority, prayer is a deciding factor. Be anxious for nothing. How? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests, just say, God, here's my request, which is what Eleazar did. Prayer, his prayers to God were a factor. So go... Asking God, here's what I got out of the passage. Go asking God, simple prayer, to not complicate things. Would you say amen to that? We can so complicate this process of evangelism or our lives being a light. We can so complicate this process of serving God. When really, don't complicate it. How did he do that? He just had a conversation. He just started the conversation. I'm just going to see if she's the one. Now, he put his little fleece up to God. So go asking God. In other words, God, would you help me just to relax? In just the everyday relational interactions, because you are at work. And I'm praying, God, you'll show me. And I want to make the choice that you make. I want to go where you've called me to go. So in my mind, it's just relax, just as you are, for who you are. How are we doing here? Oh, we're doing great. <laughs> okay, his pursuit, number four, his pursuit of the woman. And it happened before he had finished, verse 15, that behold, here's Rebecca. So he's praying. And before he's even done praying... It happened, here's Rebecca. What happens? He pursues her. So he's asking God. At this point, he doesn't know anything about her. And she doesn't know anything about him. And so he's asking, and what happens is, what he sees, he likes. At least for now. What does he see? She's beautiful. And Isaac's going to appreciate the fact that that was important. <laughs> She's beautiful. To behold, she has her pitcher on her shoulder. 
She's an industrious woman. A good first impression, for sure. So how do we do this? What's the pursuit? Number one, what he can see he likes for now. But what he can't see, he leaves for later. In other words, there's not a don't go. He sees certain things, but he has no idea because he has other questions that are just as important. Is she from Abraham's family? Is she marriageable material? Is she someone who is, could be married? Is she a virgin? He doesn't know that yet, but he likes what he sees for now, and he leaves what he can't see for later. So he begins to pursue her. Now, it goes both ways because Rebecca doesn't know him either. All she sees are the camels. <laughs> she sees something, and that divine appointment has now stirred in her something that's worth pursuing. So she's, she's going to be responding. He doesn't wait another minute. Look at verse 17. The servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all the camels. Now, this is no small task. Camels drink what I read, 25 to 30 gallons of water. And she's got a pitcher, and she's feeding 10 camels. So that's like 300 gallons of water. And from some of the things I've read, she would have to be making this trip down to the well, which is grueling, load the pitcher up again, and come back and for 10 camels. Now, how many trips that was, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, she's got a good impression going. So back and forth she goes. Now, Rebecca was a physical knockout from what we're told. But here's what I thought. I said she could also physically knock out probably any of us buff guys here. I mean, she was in shape. <laughs> so let the wooing begin. Let the serving continue. How? Go when it's a go and don't when it's a no. Go when it's a go. Continue in the commitment. Continue to do what you're committed to doing, but don't when it's a no. What would God have you to do? In this case, Eleazar sees her, understands a couple things, likes what he sees for now, but then what he doesn't see, he's waiting for more information. That's the way to go. That's, what, that's wisdom. So what would God have you do next? And what do we have here in our story? Fifth, his patience in wondering. I love this when it came to mind. Notice what it says in verse 21. And the man wondering at her. He's wondering and he's watching. Remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So he's wondering what's going to come next. What's happening? He's watching. So it was when the camels had finished drinking. Remember he had said, if she says, drink my camels also, she's the one. And so she does exactly that. Notice, the man took a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel. Two bracelets for her wrists, weighing 10 shekels. So he gives her very generously, whether it's for her labors or not, whatever it was going on, she, he has sparked her interest. He has gotten her attention more so that she herself is drawn to continue, to keep going. And verse 23, and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? Here's the million-dollar question. Are you the one? Are you the one? I mean, you got to just be in Eliezer's shoes here. He's asking you the questions. Are you the one? Are you the one? 
has come now. And he's wondering a wonderful thing. He's doing, he's committed, he's made the commitment, he's seeing things he likes, he's not sure about things he doesn't know yet, but he's wondering. And his patience, he's waiting, he's waiting in wondering. I think that is such a vital part of serving God, of, of sharing our lives with others, that we, we're patiently wondering, God, what are you doing? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And so she answers him, I am the daughter of Bethel, Milka's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. And he's saying, nailed it. <laughs> he's saying, you got to be kidding me. And in his mind, he's thinking, wow, look what happened. She just might be the one. Now, he wasn't saying, if she's not the one, am I still obligated? No, he wasn't obligated for her choice. But he's in his commitment to follow through in his getting the go. Now he's patiently wondering, God, what are you doing? And let me say to you, my experience has always been, God gives me an opportunity, I take it, and he guides me. Another opportunity comes because the first one was taken. And God is magnificent, masterful at taking these, giving us opportunities and then we patiently wait and wonder, Lord, what are you doing? How are you going to do it? What is it that you're going to do? And so he's going, how fun is this? How exciting. Can you imagine? How exciting. Now let me ask you, when you saw your wife first time, or your spouse, did you say, uh, she's the one I'm going to marry? Now most of you would say, well, I won't even go there this morning. But you've got to imagine Eleazar loves his master, loves his master's son. And I believe now he's beginning to realize that what Abraham said to him was prophetic. You're going to go there and you're going to take a wife for my son. So let the wooing continue. Let the serving continue. How? Wonder with God and enjoy it. Enjoy it. That means enjoying the commitment that you've made, wondering how is God going to take this along? How is he going to work this out? Have patience. Stay committed and wonder at the marvelous things that God can and will do in and through your decisions because he loves you. Let time be on your side. Now, sometimes you go, you know, we wonder, why do they ever sign up for that? <laughs> why do they ever sign up for this? And that comes along. But listen, I'm going to encourage you, just keep the commitment, because in commitment is where God answers the wondering. And as I'm committed to the things, like, for example, let's say you commit yourself to serving in the children's ministry. You keep that commitment. You may get in there and think, I am totally out of sorts here. I don't know what I'm doing. Hey, wonder, what's God going to do here? Keep the commitment. Keep praying. Keep taking the, you, you've made the commitment. I believe a commitment is God's means of deepening our character. Whatever commitment it might be. And one of the things that's tragic about our culture, commitment doesn't mean a whole lot anymore today. But in God's economy, in God's working out his, his character in our lives, commitment is everything. And my commitments, my word, is what God will use. And if that thing's not working, he will give us a way out. I am not talking about marriage. But as some of you have experienced deep trouble, deep hurt, deep things in, with God, I believe with all my heart that through repentance, through understanding these things, that God is the great healer. God is the one who can take a mess and begin to make it a message in his economy. 
So I want to, just, I, I could spend a, a lot of time talking about that. We've dealt, I have with many difficult situations and none of them are the same. And you might be in some difficult situation. I want to point you again to God. Wonder with him. Wonder what he's doing. Wonder how he's going to figure this thing out for you. And you stay tuned to the goes and the knows. And keep that as center. So let time be on your side. Because God is the creator of time. He will work it out. He will figure these things out if you'll stick with them. Finally, the sixth factor is his praise to God. And I love this too. Notice verse 24. Or 26, then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. Three times now in the final segment of this passage, this servant, Eleazar, worshiped God. Right there, he bows and worships the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. His whole motivation is not himself. It's for the master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me and the house of my master's brother. So listen, on the way. It's a lot, in fact, it's impossible to, to have any direction in a car that's not moving. It's very difficult to steer a bike if you're not moving, even to stay up on it. God will lead us providentially. God is working, but we have to have a go. We have to be going in a direction, and he can direct that and steer it. And so in life, I think I love the fact of putting roundabouts. How many of you like roundabouts? I love them. The only thing that frustrates me is when someone doesn't know how to use it. <laughs> when you get up to a roundabout, you're not supposed to stop if you don't have to. Okay, I won't go there. <laughs> you get up to that roundabout, you're, you can see, so you can just keep going. But listen, there are lots of roundabouts. And so when you get to the roundabout, then, okay, you got to know, okay, do I take the first one, the second one, the third one, or do I go all the way around? And sometimes you're going around a couple times trying to decide. How many of you have done that? When we're doing the GPS thing in our car, and Charlotte's the one at the helm with the GPS. Okay, my first one, second one, well, I, I, you know, I got to know because I'm getting up there, you know. But listen, the Lord directs movement. We got to get on the move. We got to be in process so that he can lead us where he wants to. And the cool thing with the Lord in our lives is there's a lot of roundabouts. And, you know, we might get off on the wrong one. And we got to turn around, come back, and, oh, it's the 9 o'clock, not the 6 o'clock and all that. But the Lord is a master at taking and directing us and by which we worship God. We worship him. And that's what the servant does right there in front of her. So let the wooing continue. Let the servant continue. How? Worship him who loves you. Worship him. Let that be indicative of your life that people see you are going to worship. And this Eliezer bowed right there and worshiped the Lord. And so his servant witnessed and worshiped. Verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out to, him, to the man by the well. It came to pass when he saw the nose ring. Notice this about Laban. And the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, come in, oh, bless. He's a, Laban turns out is a very greedy man. He's saying, man, okay, come on in. We got camels, we got gold, we got all, you come, you stay here as long as you want, is what's going on. So all, what does he do? He says, I don't want a thing to eat until I tell you, the, until he witnessed to him. And that's what he says in verse uh, 33. He says, Food was set before him, and he said, I will not eat until I have told 
about my errand, and he said, speak on. And so in verses 20, uh, 34 through 41, he tells him, here was the plan. God's providence comes in invisibly. Verses 42 through 41, he prays. He tells him about how he prayed to God. Verses 45 through 47, he tells of the pursuit. He tells of his patience. He doesn't directly say that, but that's what's going on there. And then notice verse 48, and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord. And bless the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you'll deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. It came to pass again. Abraham's servant heard these words, their words. He worshiped the Lord, being him, bowing himself to the earth. He worshiped. He praised his praise to God. So Rebekah then, verse 53, responds, I will go. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her master. So now the family of Rebekah is benefiting by her choice here. And he, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she may go. And he said to them, do not hinder me. I, he's saying, I can't wait. I got to get back. This is so exciting. This is so amazing. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so that I may go to my mouth. He can't wait to tell the news. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. This is so beautiful. Picture God's wooing love. <laughs> we will call the young woman. And asked her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they went. Sent Rebecca away, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. They may never see her again. But may you... Your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. And you got to know that two-and-a-half-month journey, whatever it was, was a long, arduous journey. And all along the way, at times, I'm sure the servant is saying to the, to the bride, Hey, i got to tell you about the master whom I love. i got to tell you about his son. i got to tell you about his life with Abraham, life with as Eliezer has a servant, life with his son. I got to tell you about that. And so she's gaining, she's hearing more and that little arduous journey as they go back. And so though the journey is tough for us, listen, it's worth the walk. We're hearing more and more. Though it will take time, and it does, it's worth the wait. Why? Because we walk in waiting for the wedding. That's the picture. And so Rachel says, I will go and become his wife. Look what First Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, 
honor and glory where? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And brothers, we're waiting for a wedding. We're walking and waiting, and it's, it's worth it. Revelation, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, the King. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Revelation continues, verse 8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed is, are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. I will go. Verse 62, Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahoy Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Now he's been waiting just like her. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. Now, that word dismounted means to fall or to cast down. So some suggest that she fell off the camel. <laughs> I don't know, but I'll tell you what. Falling in love can be like falling off a camel. It's not the, but, you know, you're maybe embarrassed and stuff, but there's something that's coming up there that she fell off the camel about. She said, whoa, he's here. And so we continue to read. Verse 65. For she said to the servant, who is the man walking in the field to meet us? He basically said, I've been telling you all about him since we left. It's my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, prepared. And the servant told Isaac all the things. So now he's telling Isaac, witnessing. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so he was comforted after his mother's death. Let the wooing continue. Here, I'll just wrap this up, and we're going to take communion. Plan. Here we go. Yeah. Go with one goal in mind, to love. This, I'm talking about our responsibility, the Great Commission. Let's talk about evangelism. Go with one goal in mind, that's to love. Secondly, know that go trusting God is with you and working through you. Third, prayers. Go asking God to help you, not complicated. It's not complicated. Fourth, pursuit. Go when it's a go, don't when it's a no. Fifth, wonder with God and enjoy the ride. Finally, worship him who loves you. And we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion together. And communion is a time, as I shared, we look back at what God has done. And in the cross, and communion is for the believer. So if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ. And what we're doing here is to be a picture for you.